Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. I always request that guests send me a bio to read on the podcast. For this episode, I think the best and truest introduction to our conversation is to simply read the bio submitted by Tristan Andre Parks. Tristan Andre Parks, born and raised of and by Nashville, Tennessee. Tristan now holds his MFA in acting from UNC Chapel Hill's Professional Actor Training Program. An art maker, organizer, and social justice frontline worker, Tristan is on his way to creating a home and community in New York City with all of the intentions of creating a home across the Atlantic and back. He loves deeply and without exception. To art. To disruption. To family. To peace. The game is afoot. He seems ready. Are you? And so it is. In this episode, we focus on Tristan's original theater dance spiritual performance piece titled They Do Not Know Harlem, in communion with James Baldwin. See links in the show notes for information about the fundraiser scheduled for April 27th at Walltown Studio Theater in Durham. The full-length piece will be performed as part of a residency at Thomas DeFran's Slippage Lab at Duke University, May 10th through 11th. Don't miss it. I hope this conversation brings you the joy it brought me. Enjoy. Tristan Andre Parks, thank you for being here today. I'm so excited to talk with you. Today we're focusing on your original dance theater music piece Mm -hmm. titled, They Do Not Know Harlem in Communion with James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. How do you describe this piece? Recently, what's been sort of bestowed upon my heart and my mind is that it's a piece of like spiritual workshop. And by spiritual workshop, I mean, how are we collectively gathered in the space together and sort of querying and prompting questions of that great question of who am I? Mm -hmm. Who am I? Who am I? And oftentimes to, in order to, to know who you are or to, be on the trajectory of unraveling who you are, you know, you you have to go back and name that thing of the past. And so that's what this piece is to me, going back into the past so that, you know, I'm, I'm affirmed in my now. Mm. And what could audience members expect to experience when they are watching this unfold? Or is it a participatory piece? It is a highly participatory okay. piece. And so that's what they can expect is to not merely come and be an audience member, but to come and be a witness, which is a term that Baldwin always used in his work, always used whenever, you know, on the social justice front line, you know, working. And he'd always use, you know, I, the term witness because that then gives way to I am not just merely observing, but I have to be active. I have to act on this thing. And so that's what those who come to witness it can expect is to to merely be a witness mm-hmm. and anticipate embodying, you know, the spirit and and 
of what this what this thing is of what the spiritual workshop is you know i love this idea of talking about audience as witness because i think it implies a certain kind of accountability mm-hmm. to what is happening in the space mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then perhaps invites people to reflect mm-hmm. and have a dialogue with themselves and with each other. And I think when we go into an artistic event only as observers, it sort of lets us off the hook mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. that maybe isn't as fruitful and productive as mm-hmm. it could be. Mm-hmm. I believe so. I think that, you know, especially from where where I'm imagining this piece is all driven from the Africanist aesthetic. And so when I think of art in the Africanist aesthetic, you know, there was no delineation between translator and those who witness. Everyone was a acted as a participant. Mm-hmm. And when I think of in among Western tradition, among the Western imagination, like there is this delineation between performer and audience. Whereas in the Africanist aesthetic, there is no delineation between singer mm-hmm. and those who listen to the singer. You know, a singer sings because they have to. Or a storyteller translates a story because they have to. A dancer dances because they have to. And that's what this piece is. It's absolutely... I I, I have trouble also, too, defining the piece. But, <laughs> you know, in pragmatic sense, you know, that's where... If I were to name it, that's, that's what this thing is. It's like, it is a collective work. You have several collaborators who mm-hmm. you're working with. Could you talk a little bit about those folks? Mm-hmm. Well, it all began... Actually, this project began as a thesis for my drama 728 movement for the actor class. So I knew last summer going into the fall of my third and uh, my third and final year of grad school that we'd have to devise and develop a 20 minute excerpt of a solo piece that could, you know, allow us to take wings and autonomize our own creative voices as artists. So I knew that I wanted to work on a piece of on James Baldwin because I'd always been told by mentors and colleagues that Tristan, where's the James Baldwin piece specifically? Specifically, uh, my professor, teacher, mentor, uh, mother and spirit, Kathy Hunter Williams, who's a professor at UNC and company member of Playmakers. She's always she was always probing me about where's that Baldwin piece? Where's that Baldwin piece? And so time permitted itself. And um, fortunately, Tracy Bursley, who's our movement coach and resident movement um, choreographer at Playmakers, she sort of she's the inciting incident for this piece and developing and curating this immersive piece on Baldwin. And so um, that's how it began is in my movement for the actor class last semester, we were working on devising a a 20 minute excerpt and we then present them um, at the end of the, at the end of the semester. So in December, and I had developed a relationship with Tommy DeFrance over the course of 2018 professor of dance and African-American studies at Duke and who was the director of Slippage Lab, which is a dance and technology, technological space for artists to come in and work and research movement and technology. And so I mentioned this project to him and I was, I, I said, you know, Uncle Tommy, I'm, I'm working on a piece on Baldwin and I'm not sure where it's leading me, but I know like I know right now I'm in the process of developing and devising it. And he says, oh, you can uh, use my space if you want to workshop in, he, in, 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 in Slippage Lab. So he gifted me his space last December to present the 20-minute excerpt. 
And it was a high time. <laughs> it really was. And I could not have even fathomed it being what it was then. And gradually over time, because of that moment there, it's sort of like gradually taken its wings. And now I'm working, I've worked with uh, Marcella D. Camara of Young, Gifted and Broke, a creative consultancy here that um, uplifts and upholds artists of color throughout the triangle community. And uh, she co-produced it with me at North Star, where she's the artist in residence there. And I owe Marcella everything uh, and Heather Cook over at North Star Church of the Arts. And it was just serendipitous that that happened. And now I'm partnering with Lisa Suzanne Turner, lighting designer and projectionist, who actually saw the piece in December and is now working on new projection lighting oh, and images for the residency that is happening in May at Slippage Lab. Mm-hmm. So I have an entire village of people who have back this project who are on the front line with me. And um, I don't look at it as a solo performance piece. Um, I look at it again as a collective spiritual workshop that, you know, which is ultimately what art is. So I'm, you know, I honor all of those names who, who believe in this project with me because all it takes is a one yes, you know, Uh and could be make a huge difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. So why were people asking you, where's the Baldwin piece? Is that because you said, oh, I want to do this or because people saw some sort of connection? I believe, I believe so. I think I've been asked in the past, like, what is my connection to Baldwin? And I was introduced to Baldwin and truly introduced to Baldwin. And I stress the truly, truly introduced to Baldwin. In undergrad, I read Giovanni's Room. And before that, I had done a church play at my hometown church in that, in my hometown church in Nashville that was directed by a cousin of mine. Uh, his, his, his infamous play, his most, his most famous play, The Amen Corner. And then I didn't have any context of who Baldwin was. It, I just merely chalked it up to it being another church play. And I was just excited to do it. I wanted to act. I wanted to tell that story. Any opportunity that presented itself to me to act, I did it and I did it with fervor and I did it with passion. And um, whether that been in the church or in the you know traditional sense of the theater. So the Amen Corner was where I was actually first introduced to Baldwin. However, I didn't have context of who it was. I was 16, 17 then. So I was just joy- overjoyed to be acting. Right. However, it wasn't until I got to college, University of Memphis, where I really began to really like go through the archives of like literary giants, uh, black literary giants, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, Audre Lorde and James Baldwin. And so James Baldwin's work, I began with Giovanni's room because undergrad, particularly for me, is where I began to find my voice as a queer, queer artist, as a queer, as a queer man. And so I refer, I look to Baldwin because when you look at the trajectory of, of grade school learning and, and, and going through grade school, we were taught Martin Luther King and we're taught Mar- Malcolm X, but we never, it's never really referenced James Baldwin and Bayard Rustard or Audre Lorde, those queer mothers and fathers of the movement. Uh, and so it wasn't until college where I read Giovanni's Room and then started reading Blues for Mr. Charlie and then going back to the Amen Corner and now, you know, just now going through his archives of archives of essays uh, upon essays and reading his friends and colleagues talk, reading about like his friends and colleagues talking about him and his work and, you know, just going through the canon of interviews. And so it was undergrad where I really was like I had the 
I felt the impetus. I said to myself, someday I'm going to do something with James Baldwin. And that moment is now where it's like, (laughs) now it's like manifesting. And um, I didn't know then in undergrad what the thing was, but I knew like, I'm going to do something with James Baldwin. So it was college. And over time, like, you know, I carried his spirit with me because I was so inspired by him. And of course, like your heroes, you, you emulate your hero consciously or subconsciously. And so when I got to graduate school, it was sort of serendipitous and not accidental, I don't think, when people come up to me and kept saying, Tristan, where's the Baldwin piece? Where's the Baldwin piece? And kept probing me about it. And now I was just like, it's coming, you know, time, time will present itself. And so now it has. So maybe, you know, I walked us through a tunnel. However, I, I assume that people might have felt like a metaphysical connection with with Baldwin that I may carry with me because I do desire to be as intellectually powerful as he was and, and as passionate as he was and just as large as he is, you know, I do desire to be, be that way. <laughs> I want to read a quote that you wrote on your GoFundMe page. It's a little bit related to all of this. You wrote, quote, It is necessary to continue to redefine the way that Baldwin impacts this new generation of artists so as to explore the relevance and how we all embody his work, his words, and his legacy, end quote. What do you see as his relevance and impact on this new generation of artists? You're one of them. I think that his relevance, it all is in the fire next time. His essay, The Fire Next Time, his magnum opus, where he foresees this current political climate that we're in now. He foreshadowed it. Mm -hmm. And I always reference Baldwin as a seer, Mm -hmm. uh, the mighty seer in God's tongue. When I read The Fire Next Time, that essay last Last fall, when I first actually sat down with the full essay, because I'd only read part of it prior, the first part, which is a letter to his nephew, James. And I was charged with the psychic fervor of what that essay entailed, that essay alone, Mm -hmm. the fire next time. And I recently read a response to that essay, uh, in particular by a professor at UNC, Randall Keenan, called The Fire This Time, mm-hmm. which is a response to Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. And that within itself holds so much profundity of how someone can foresee and, and, and literally takes pen to paper and writes down If we collectively do not define who we are, then the climate of administration and leadership will continue to be absolutely corrupt. And we will suffer. And we will suffer. Uh, We will pay a a great price if we do not speak truth to power and act on that truth. And so I think that that's what the relevancy is of Baldwin and his legacy and how he has now in many ways, has passed the torch to to us to really um, call us in and show up for one another and speak truth to, you know, hegemony and, and, and violence and trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that holds so much weight. 
in 2019 and going forward. Yeah, that's where I am. That's where, you know, I believe his work to, to be and where his work to have lied, whether that be in his essays or whether that have been him literally marching on Washington, you know, and on the social justice front lines and yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or whether that had been him having to leave to self-preserve, leave the U- United States. To, to France, go, right? To he go spent to, a yeah, long he time spent, there. he spent some time in Europe, mm-hmm. in France, and he ended up going to Turkey, spending some time in Turkey and Istanbul. You know, self, to self-preserve is a radical act mm. uh, because he knew had he, had he stayed in the U.S., then someone would have paid a price. <laughs> and whether that had been him or someone at the risk of, you know, at, at Baldwin's hands, where he says, you know, blood would have been on my hand or my blood would have been on someone else's hand. And so I had to leave. I had to go. And so, and then him later coming back to the U.S. because there was more work to be done. And he knew like the deaths of Malcolm and Martin, who were very close with him and Metgar Evers. They were all very close and worked very closely with one another. Uh, and Andrew Young, who was Martin's assistant, who acted as Martin's assistant, Martin's right hand man. They they all had to get to work, which is why, which was a. Uh, the impetus for Baldwin to come back to the U.S. to do more work. And then, you know, he'd go back to Europe to do more writing, which is where he'd where he'd get his inspiration, listening to, you know, Bessie Smith or Fats Waller. And that being the the impetus for Go Tell It on the Mountain, you know, his 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 first his first book that was published. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I carry a lot of that experience in my body. I carry so much. You, you know, it's it's. He acts as my grandfather, you know, <laughs> and my uncle. So, would it be all right if you could speak to us some James Baldwin that you feel um, willing to share? This is a uh, this is actually an excerpt from his 1963 interview from Kenneth with Kenneth B. Clark. Uh, this is from an interview. First house I remember was on Park Avenue. Not the American Park Avenue, or maybe it is the American Uptown Park Avenue where the railroad tracks are. We used to play on the roof and in the, um, I can't call it an alley, but near the river. It was a sort of garbage dump. Those were the first scenes I remember. My father had trouble keeping us alive. I was the oldest of nine kids, so I dealt with the kids and dealt with daddy. I understand him much better now. Part of his problem was he couldn't feed his kids. But I was a kid, and I didn't know that. He was very religious and very rigid. He kept us together, I must say. And when I look back on my growing up and walk that same block today in 2019, because it is still there, And think of the kids on that block now. I am aware that something terrible has happened, which is very hard to describe. I am in all but technical legal fact, a Southerner. My father was born in the South. My mother was born in the South. And if they had waited two more seconds, I might have been born in the South. 
But that means I was raised by families whose roots were essentially Southern rule and whose relationship to the church was very direct because it was the only means they had of expressing their pain and their despair. But years later, the moral authority, which was present in the Negro Northern community when I was growing up, vanished. And people talk about progress. And I look at Harlem, which I really know. I know it like I know my hand. And it is much worse that today than it was when I was growing up. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was remarkable how you conjured his voice and like speech patterns and <laughs> But it's remarkable because I can see you in front of me. And uh-huh. then I was hearing you through the microphone. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you were speaking both as James Baldwin and as yourself, sort of channeling both those well, stories. Well, that was well, those. Well, that's in the piece in its entirety. But yeah. that was the James Baldwin section of okay. the piece. So then I then laid or so inlay my own story and how it mirrors and also juxtaposes Baldwin's story of my growing up in the literally in the phys- physically in the in the South and his growing up in the North, but I identifying as a Southerner because mm. of traditions that were carried from his father and his father's father over to the North during the Great Migration, during the era of the Great Migration. So, yeah, I sort of, yeah, I sort of, I inlay, I insert my voice into Mira and also dichotomize Baldwin's mm. voice. These are some things that you already mentioned, but I want to dig a little bit deeper here. We know that James Baldwin was an activist and is generally considered to be a literary figure as an artist, so Mm -hmm. a playwright and novelist and essayist. Yet, as you mentioned, this project began in a movement course, and I wanted to share an excerpt of a review that I read on Facebook, Mm -hmm. which I think is really more of a testimony than a a review. Um, And it was written by Toshi Reagan. If listeners don't know who that is, Toshi Reagan is an American musician, composer, lyricist. This was, must have felt wonderful to receive. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, this is a quote from, from Toshi's writing on Facebook quote, at the center of it all was the body. The dance invocation took residence in the church, on the pulpit, and up and down the aisles. Tristan, in a black suit, white shirt, black tie, handled himself through the architecture of the clothes he was wearing. I don't think I have seen anyone conjure dance Baldwin before last night. End quote. And she's talking about witnessing a part of the performance that you um, held at the North Star Church of the Arts recently. So... Why did you choose to dance Baldwin as opposed to just doing a straight up theater piece? Mm -hmm. And then the second part of that question is, how do you do that? Well, because my background is in both dance and in theater and particularly in the world of I have a heavy, heavy background in the world of concert dance, which is ultimately like modern dance told through through story, which Mm -hmm. is ultimately theater. And so I don't, for me and my existence and how I exist in the world of theater and dance is that they're not two separate entities. Right. They're actually one and the same. And so why, why not dance Baldwin, you know, and really utilize Baldwin as a, um, as a way to conjure my, conjure him through movement? You know, it's not a matter of like, why dance Baldwin? But it was a matter of like, it, it sort of, I felt that it felt volitional to do, to, not in, not to um, 
take Baldwin on in some sort of um, sense of here I am, actor Tristan, wanting to take on the role like of Like do an impression of him Do or an something. impression right. of Baldwin, yeah. yeah. I wanted to really disrupt that idea as opposed to me sort of having to do put in the work. You have to physically, as the witness, mm-hmm. see me put in the work to then possess Baldwin. Because the first question that was prompted to me at while when I first began working on the piece last fall by my mentor, uh, Tommy DeFrance, a.k.a. Uncle Tommy, he asked the question, does Baldwin want to act as a collaborator in your piece? Oh, I love that. Oh, beautiful. And so that was the, that, that's the question that I am forever sitting with and acting on. That question had then ignited me into this world of conjuring, of movement, utilizing the drum, the horn, and the strings to then pull Baldwin, to call on Baldwin, to then uh, possess me. Mm-hmm. It's more, I, I think of it more in the terms of like possession. Um, again, af- from the Africanist aesthetic perspective of, of, of a conjuring, of possession, um, of ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so we are then calling on the spirit, the Holy Spirit of Baldwin to then go forth, to go forth. So I think that dance has dance acts as the the catalyst for the conjuring of Baldwin, and so it, I have to earn the right to tell the story of Baldwin, so that then I can tell my own. Mm-hmm. That's where I am mentally with the piece, as far as like it's not necessarily like sure it is dance Baldwin, <laughs> um, but it's more so like the dance has sort of chosen me. It's called me. The dance has called me. Uh, Again, it goes back to that whole rhetoric from earlier where I say you dance because you have to. Mm -hmm. You sing the song because you must. and You translate the story because you must. Well, I tell the story. I dance the story of Baldwin because I must. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that. So through telling his story and then telling your story, what have you learned about yourself, your story, maybe from the past, present, or future through working on this piece? That I'm actually more powerful than I thought. <laughs> and that might that might sound, you know, a bit egocentric for the shallow listener. But um, I actually possess a little more power than I imagined in the past the power of um, just really understanding who I am, really going back and thanking those who have come before me, my mother, my father, my grandmother, all of my family, who are beautiful, beautiful people, truly. Forgiving all of my past, (sighs) truly, so that I can be free. And because I am free, uh, that makes me powerful. And uh, because Baldwin was so free, he was so free and he knew the dangers of what freedom meant. But because of he was so free, he was affirmed in himself. There was a profound amount of self-regard that he had for himself. Mm-hmm. And because he had such a profundity of self-regard, then he wasn't going to tolerate. There were, there were things that he would, ju- he would just not tolerate. 
such as violence, corruption, trauma, all those things that he has spoken to. And also stillness, uh, which Toni Morrison speaks power to in her new work, The Source of Self-Regard, where she was, she speaks about uh, in her essay, Peril, there's a danger of pursuing art. And she says, um, because what those in positions of power will do will try to name you and then they will abuse you. And so there's a real, there's peril there. It's perilous. It's a perilous act to pursue art when you're doing it for the sake of community, mm. when you're doing it for the sake of your own healing, mm. and when you're doing it for the sake of um, healing past trauma. Mm. And uh, so I think that all of those things, you know, Baldwin, what he did was pursue a perilous act. And so, I mean, it's powerful. It's a very powerful thing to do. And I think that even the smallest things, such as this conversation here with you and I, is it's a perilous act, you know. And I am I'm always resting with that. And I think that now that I am going back to through the Baldwin through the Baldwin's canon, and through and even in by way of going through Baldwin's canon, I then go back of my own past and reassert how I imagine things mm-hmm. to have happened in my past. And now that I and now that I am beginning to have a clear understanding of thing of how my mother and my father moved through the world, because they had to move that way, I can now forgive, and I can say thank you as the highest form of gratitude. Which thank you is freeing. It is absolutely freeing. I think that that's the most powerful, radical phrase anyone could ever say is thank you. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. When you and I spoke on the phone mm-hmm. prior to this interview, you described this piece as a catalyst for taking wings into the world. Mm-hmm. So you are on the verge of receiving your MFA mm-hmm. in acting mm-hmm. from UNC Chapel Hill, which congratulations. Thank That's you a so wonderful much. accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. Would you talk a little bit about your experience in the MFA program and how or whether they do not know Harlem is a bridge between the two worlds of before and after graduate school for you. Mm-hmm. My experience at UNC has been fully loaded and charged. Um, you know, it's been highly emotional, and I say that in a multitude of ways. Me and, and by emotional, I do mean it's brought many, many joys, many, many trials, and many, many triumphs. And uh, I'm strengthened by it. I'm strengthened by my experience at UNC. I'm very, very grateful for it. I've developed and met some of the most extraordinary artists within that community at UNC and playmakers and here in the Triangle. And I'm very blessed to, to be here right now in this moment in time, here with you and here in the Triangle, because it is powerful here. So many powerful artists and singular artists out here doing exceptional work. It's an absolute blessing to be able to know these extraordinary people and um, be able to, you know, have met some really uh, profound social justice workers, you know, and people who are giving their whole hearts to communities that have been disenfranchised. So yeah, that's been my experience in grad school is that I've had a a fully charged experience. I've had great losses 
and uh, great gains. And I like to think of the Muhammad Ali quote is that, you know, I don't ever lose. Every experience is either either a win or a lesson. Um, and so I, in the midst of maybe like a physical loss, I gained so much. I gained a sense of brotherhood and uh, I gained so many sisters and I gained a profound amount of knowledge as far as my practice as an artist and above all a human. And I am forever beholden to this community here in the triangle. I'm very, I do not take my experience here for granted. And they do not know Harlem has been affirmation for me that, you know, if you can see it in the mind's eye, then that's enough. It's absolutely enough. And all you have to do is speak truth to that thing that you see through your third eye. And someone says, yes. And it all, and that's all it takes is a yes. And um, we're continuing to grow and expand. And this piece began as a class project and now has developed into workshops, you know, and then we have the fundraiser, which is the 27th of April, and then the residency in May. And so that's going to fully come to life with the images and projection art with the movement and the live score and the recorded score. So I do believe that this piece is a piece that will have legs, will have longevity. And with the blessing of Mr. Baldwin's estate, I believe that we we will go to the mountaintop uh, with this piece and um, every dream will be seen too. And every every manifestation is already a reality. I anticipate all of the good that it will bring to communities, my community here and abroad. It's definitely a catalyst for me, you know, transitioning into this profound next step of my mm-hmm. of my of my life of of my artistic career and of my life and i i'm i'm overjoyed about it i truly am i'm overjoyed and i am um going wisely and 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 slowly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'm not going to i'm not i'm not running i'm not going to run fast you know with it i'm just going to take my time with it and enjoy enjoy this moment now and anticipate the good to come. How can people support your work? Well, we have the GoFundMe page, which is www.gofundme.com slash Harlem Fundraiser, which is the handle uh, URL. And then we also have the fundraiser event coming up April 27th, which is a, it's no admission there, but we'll do a, um, a little like tithe and offering basket to, Help support the work, the extraordinary artists, my collaborators, such as my musician, Eric Duncan, uh, Britton Harrison, who will act as vocalist and who produced the score. Uh, Lisa Suzanne Turner, who is, again, lighting designer and projection artist. And um, yeah, so that's how we can monetarily show up for the work. And then, of course, again, bring you, bring you and bring your whole self. So. And I will include all of the links to those pages mm-hmm. in the show notes so that people can go and do some clicking mm-hmm. and and know more of the details. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you would like to cover before we wrap up? I believe that we have we definitely touched we touched base on we touched a lot. <laughs> on everything. I do, I do. I believe so, Tamara. <laughs> 
Well, I just want to thank you. Thank you. Deeply and sincerely for this conversation and for the work that you're making, because I know that it has already touched many people's hearts and has opened them to you know, a deeper communion with, mm-hmm. with not only James Baldwin, but with the community, with themselves. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. Christ, thank you, Tamara. Hey, friends. Did you know that I'm working on a new audio drama to be released this summer 2019? It's an adaptation of my stage play, Master Builder. This is a whole new kettle of fish for me, and I'm so excited We're revealing all sorts of behind-the-scenes goodies via the Artist Soapbox Patreon page, and we'd love for you to join us as we roll toward completion. Patrons who donate $3 or more per month have access to updates and extras, and even more excitingly, they'll have early access to the completed audio drama before the general public. Come on and join us at patreon.com slash artistsoapbox.com.